Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. At Greenlight Guru, the biggest thing we care about is the biggest thing you care about, improving the quality of life with medical devices built with less risk. We know we're not physically there helping you to build devices, but our software is. So why wouldn't we build our software to be aligned with industry standards like ISO 1345 or 14971? We're the only medical device QMS solution provider to be named by G2 as a category leader for 13 quarters in a row. Because it's an odd number, I can't do the math and tell you how many years, but what does that mean? It means medical device companies who are out there making a difference believe we're making a difference and they're telling people about it. If you're looking to make a difference by getting quality, life-saving devices to market on an average three times faster, contact Greenlight Guru today to start the conversation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I hope this day is treating you well so far. Today's episode is on a topic uh, that doesn't usually make headlines until it's done wrong, and that is packaging. And this is an important but often overlooked topic, especially if you're producing a sterilized product. So today's guest that we have on today to the show is to discuss packaging. It's a little bit on sterilization. His name is Jeff Barrett, CEO of JPAC Medical. Jeff Barrett is a 25-year veteran of the medical device industry, having operated and commercialized experience in both public and private device companies. Jeff specializes in getting new devices to market and scaling that commercialization. So Jeff was CEO of GI Supply, Optium, which was an ENT product. He was also vice president of operations at Hemonautics, uh, which was blood processing, as well as Aspect Medical, um, a part of Medtronic. Specifically relevant for today's topic, he has extensive knowledge and understanding of ISOs 11607-1 and-2 packaging for terminally sterilized medical devices. So I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I wish you the best in all your packaging endeavors. Thanks for listening. Hey, Jeff, it's good to be with you today. I'm excited to talk about you know what we have in front of us today. First of all, packaging validation, but then how we're going to relate that to preventing 510K delays. Yeah, kind of as we were talking about briefly, everybody wants to prevent delays, but maybe if you like, you can go ahead and give a little bit more information about you and, and uh, your background there if you want. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. It's yeah. a timely topic. It's, it's always a, a source of problems and uh, <laughs> we see it all the time. You know, JPEG, we... We are a uh, we're a niche uh, contract manufacturer for medical device and diagnostic companies. We specialize in the mid market. We are very good at a turnkey solution. So from the entire package design, the assembly, establishing assembly processes, sterilization validation, packaging validation. So when a customer comes, they really get a turnkey set of data for their their filing. And we also work with larger companies too, the very large ones as well. But even with those, our niche is really the introduction of new new products. Yeah. So, so you my, know what you're my, doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know what to do. In my background, yeah. I'm the CEO. I've been here seven years. I've got a long history in medical medical device companies, both larger and you know, smaller growth stage companies. So I've always been in, involved in the, the technical aspects as well as the business aspects, but I'm here with the technical aspects today, which I which I love. So awesome. Well, I'll I'll tell you, I I never worked directly with packaging. I was a project manager on a 
on a couple different devices, but I always made friends with those packaging guys because it did always feel like we were running just a little behind on packaging yeah. because yeah. it was it was on nobody's uh, the forefront of anybody's mind. It seemed like so, but is that yeah. your experience or what? What has been your experience? It is. It's well, you know. First, the standard. It, there's the FDA looks at a standard called ISO eleven six zero seven. That is the bible for medical device packaging validation. There's two parts to it, uh, part one and part two. Part one is all about designing the package and part two is about validating the package. It's very complicated. That standard's over a hundred pages long and they put out a guidance document for it that's over 60 pages long. Oh. So it, it, there's a lot of source of confusion in package design. So we've seen everything. I, I just had one yet yesterday. A company came and they they just said we're filing our 510k in 30 days and we need a package. It's just they don't they don't understand and it's it's uh, saved till the end and it's it's pretty simple to get it going in the earlier, but it's just a neglected a neglected thing. This might have an answer of it depends, but when someone does come to you like that towards the end of the project, what kind of time frame should they be expecting to have to to look at when they? Well, it has to do with the complexity of the package and what's been validated. But if you just take like a, like in this case, it's a product that's fairly straightforward. It goes into a pouch. So I don't have any real concerns about it failing from a transit test, but it's just got to go through that process, right? Of uh, going through the whole validation, which is you got to validate your ceiling. You got to validate your, it's got to pass a transit test. And then you got to age your seals uh, and you can use uh, what's called accelerated aging. So just say in this case, uh, they want a three-year life. They want to label this product for a three-year life. The FDA will allow you to use what's called accelerated aging studies, but you have to back it up down the road with real time. And just a rule of thumb that we tell customers is it's uh it's 45 days of accelerated aging for every one year of shelf life that you want to label. So just right there, a three-year shelf life is, you know, 45 times three. And then add to that the packaging, the transit piece. We usually plan on, we in a schedule, we'll plan on a month. In reality, if we expedite it, it could, it could be done in, in two weeks. Okay. So at, have, even at a minimum, right, you're looking at whatever, you know, 120 days for yeah. <laughs> your aging and uh, another month for just getting your transit test and protocols done and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and maybe I jumped ahead to, you know, how long does it take? Because in my, yeah. in my mind, that's, that's what I want to know. But at the same time, what we really want to know are the criteria. Um, so I always like to use that Stephen Covey quote, begin with the end in mind. You know, we want to file a 510k. What are the steps leading up to that as it relates to packaging? Are you able to kind of lay that out a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I won't go through the whole hundred pages because <laughs> <laughs> it's taken me seven years to understand it. We'll but, link to uh, it. How about that? <laughs> at the very end, I think it's good to start at the end. What you're trying to do is you're validating that the seals are good from a sterile barrier standpoint, and you're validating that the product is good, that the product hasn't changed over time because of you know transit testing or, or just aging. So that, that's the end game. But how you get there, you've got to follow the two parts of the standard. So part one is all about the package system design. 
And what a lot of our customers have to be educated on it, that it's a packaging system is, in this case, it could be a product in a pouch or a tray sealed with Tyvek that then goes in a shipper box or a, what's called a, a shelf container that's maybe at the hospital sitting on a shelf. And then so many of those go into a carton, right? It's shipped, typically is shipped in a carton with multiple units. So that whole system needs to be validated, not just the, the package that holds the product. And so from a customer standpoint, they got to think as a system because they may just haven't, haven't even thought of a shipper box or a, or a carton container. And you've got to determine, is this going on a skid, a plane, you know, all that comes into play. <clears throat> so that's an important point is understanding those requirements right up front. But from a design standpoint, you have to document how you've designed this package and how it's meeting the customer needs. But one thing the FDA has uh, recently added that's part of the standard, actually, is user testing. Because most of these sterile devices, right, have to get from an unsterile environment over some imaginary line into a sterile environment, right? And they call that sterile transfer. And that is very important. How, that, how does that happen? And how do you do that while maintaining the sterility of the product? So they want to see user testing on that. I would say uh, 99 out of 100 customers don't do it, <laughs> you know? Oh, so wow. they have to go back later and just make sure, you know, it's good. We we do offer that as a service. You know, we have access to uh, OR staff, scrub nurses, and they can give feedback on that. They're 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 the best people to give feedback as far because they're the ones that do that transfer. Uh, but that's a that's a pitfall we we see, and the FDA is starting to push back on that. So this first this first standard is um, you've got your package designed, you've got your sterile barrier designed, and you've done your user testing. But one thing we like to do that prevents problems down the road is what we call feasibility testing. So you make some prototypes, you're ready to go into a transit test, right? You've made a bunch of product, but before we do that, we'd like to make a small set of samples and just do some internal uh, drop testing, vibration testing. It's not per the ASTM standards, but it's good enough to let us know that we're, we have confidence in the package. So you, over a third, uh, over a third of all package validations fail at the oh, wow. lab for transit. Yeah, it's, it's it's staggering. So we try to do that up front to make sure we got a good shot at passing. So, and so when you do that that initial testing, is it just a percentage of your final sample number that that you're doing? Yeah, yeah. It is as simple as uh, we will take the product that might be in a pouch. There might be 25 in a shipper box. And we might just test that on its own because that's the most aggressive way, right? You're not you're not going to have a carton or anything. So if what we'll do is just test that, and if it if it looks good with that being you know shaker table and some drop testing, then we're we're pretty confident once it's in a protective carton, okay, it's it's gonna, it's gonna be fine. So vibration and and drop testing. What about humidity and uh, things like that? Right. So. The second part of the standard is all about the packaging system validation. So the first part defines how you design the package and make sure and it meets the user needs. The second part is, okay, now you've done that, you've got to validate the whole system of the package. And as I reviewed before, it's it's the product in a package, in another package, in another package. It depends on the design. Yeah. So when you get into the transit testing, there's a bunch of ASTM standards that define 
preconditioning. That's what's that's what you're referring to. How's it going to be stored? Is it going to sit in a humid warehouse in Florida for a month before it gets shipped to the customer? So there are standards around that. There's also standards around how it's expected to be shipped. Like, is it a FedEx common carrier that's just going in a truck, a single box, or is it a pallet that's going to go through a distribution chain? So that has to be determined. So basically what you're doing is you're saying, how is this product going to be shipped? And we'll go to the packaging lab and they will select the ASTM standards that are appropriate for that. That's their expertise. We we're experts in the design and verification and making sure we got a good package, but we always go to a third party lab. And quite frankly, I think that's the way to go because I don't like to be responsible in a sense for designing the package and doing the final testing to say it's good or bad. I just think having an independent party is a good, is a good thing to do. Yeah. Testing your own work at that point. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So one of the questions I have when I think about the validation is, if we're beginning with the end of mind and we're going to start this relatively early, some of that design process for the actual part might still be ongoing. So maybe, maybe you have to beef something up, maybe you have to take something out so that the weight may change. Um, yep. So for, for some of those, uh, maybe depending on the orientation of the, the packaging or whether it's a pouch or um, something different, it seems like it could potentially change that. So I'm curious, do you ever, is it okay to use a dummy part versus just and if so um what are the exact geometrical and weight requirements there that's that's a very interesting question what you can do is validate a worst case scenario we do that so you see this a lot in orthopedic implants where they'll have god you know 30 skus of a certain implant various sizes right a lot of customers misunderstand that they've got to validate the package for each one of those you don't just take we take the worst case the heaviest biggest sharpest you know the yeah. one that's going to be the most aggressive on the package and we test that and that's fine uh from an fda standpoint that, that uh there's a justification to use that for all the products now products that are going to change uh that's interesting we had a product that the customer wanted in a pouch but they changed the feature on it that gave it a sharp a feature. It was fairly sharp. You know, it wouldn't cut you or anything, but it was from a package standpoint, it was sharp. So we we told them, you know, this we either have to deal with this sharp edge with some kind of protection, additional protection, or perhaps change the package from a pouch to a thermoform tray. And uh, they were pretty adamant they just wanted to keep the package and it failed, but we oh. we knew it was going to fail. Uh but they went through three failures and we finally, they finally let us change the package design. But so that gets back to worst case, you know, it's just a discussion around, you know, what, what are the risks for redesign? Usually the engineers kind of know, like we might add this, we might add that, the geometry might change. And those are just questions to ask because you can be fairly confident depending on the answers to those, whether the package is going to be okay. Okay. So maybe skipping to the 510K, I had a question about that as well. So you said a third of products fail their packaging validation, which is yeah. a little mind-blowing to me. What do you see companies getting into the, the biggest issue like for those failures? Not understanding the um, shipping mode. And then the test that's done for that mode, it ends up, the product ends up, you know, violating the sterile barrier in some way, right? It, it pokes through for a while, okay. you know? 
for so, layman terms, right? It just damages the uh, damages the uh, seal. Less so do, do we see damage to the product itself. So I'd say, you know, eight out of 10 times on these failures, it's the product and the seal failing, not, you know, the product breaking. So what you're saying is they've actually maybe not fully vetted out their distribution channels or the way they're going to, you know, the, or the transit. Is, and that is the biggest right. problem. Okay. Yeah. If you think about, I mean, just at a high level, right, just in layman's terms, yeah. if you have a box that ships FedEx and it gets dropped, right, and thrown around the truck, that's a lot different than dropping a pallet, <laughs> you know, yeah, a thousand pound pallet, way different forces, completely different. So they need to consider that. So we've had situations where they've reduced pallet size or, you know, reduced weight of of the shipping materials that sort of thing but the a packaging lab really helps with that you get we you know we're we work hand in hand with our lab and you know we get try to get ahead of that stuff before it becomes a, an issue but customers do get annoyed with those questions like how is it going to ship you know i don't know how it's going to ship right well what's the worst case right is, is there a chance this is going to be on a pallet well, yes, when we, you know, maybe next year when we're scaling up, we're going to not ship individual boxes anymore. It's going to be pallets. Well, let's test for that. And that's the same in sterilization, by the way, which is a whole other topic, but somewhat related to packaging. When you validate sterilization, you have to basically have it. You're validating in a certain volume in a chamber. So as customers grow, they sometimes get um, behind in the sense that they had their product validated for, say, a, a chamber that's uh, one pallet. Uh, and then they grow, and now all of a sudden they're shipping four pallets at a time. All of a sudden they got to redo, redo the sterilization validation as well. I just wanted to throw that out there because that's another common thing we see related to packaging. And is that so? Maybe maybe I can just chase that for just a second with the sterilization. Is that the same with gamma versus like ethylene oxide or? I'm going to say no, because if you look at the case of gamma, what they do is they have these kind of uh, carriers, they call them. And if you could just picture, you know, like a, it's a predetermined carrier size, like a basket, and you're basically putting the product in that basket and it goes through the gamma mm -hmm. radiation. So I'd, I'd say no on that. It's more of an EO, ETO issue where you've yeah. got a specific chamber that holds so much product. So what we'll do with customers say, hey, you know, let's think through this. Let's, what's the upside here? You know, we're doing a hundred units a month now, but are we going to be doing 5,000 units a month next year? So we'll, we'll validate a larger chamber and just use dunnage. We'll use uh, fake parts and we'll fill that chamber up and validate it for that. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense. So again, going back to your worst case scenario, it sounds like, you know, it, in the event that you filled yeah. it up completely, you're still validated for that. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, a lot of customers aren't in that position to, to do that. Um, you're just risking a revalidation and validations are, I'm going to say averaging, you know, right now, anywhere from 40 to $80,000 on sterilization. And they take a very long time. You know, you're talking 16, 20 weeks, Customers are always asking why so long, and it's a very simple answer. You got to let the bugs grow before you can test it, right? So you you put it through a sterilizer, and you've got to, you know, basically grind that product up and plate it, for lack of a better term, 
and put it in an oven and let the bugs grow for a certain period of time and then t- test to see if if there are bugs or not. So when you validate sterilization, you're always, you have to use like different cycles, a fractional, a half, a full cycle. So every time you do that, it's another growing, you know, bug growing process and lab testing. So I guess that's a topic for another webinar. <laughs> yeah, that's can- another interesting one for sure. Yeah, we'll definitely have to get into that sometime. But okay, so let's go back to packaging for a minute. We've kind of touched on several different points in the life cycle, I guess, of the development of of the packaging. But one of the other things that I guess I'd... Have you ever seen customers, as they go to submit their 510K, any specific issues the FDA has with with their packaging validation? Maybe they thought they were good, um, issues that maybe they're facing. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is the the labeling for the shelf life and making sure. So it'd be helpful to kind of in worst case conditions. So I'm kind of going a a little bit around, but let me, let me regroup and explain that. So before you validate this product, the package, you have to bring it through worst case conditions. This, this is a huge problem that is overlooked. So what is a worst case conditions? It means we're going to make the product we're going to put it in a package and seal it, but we're going to seal it so that it's on the edge, right? It's not our normal seal. We're going to use the lowest parameters we can. It's still an acceptable seal, but maybe we used a colder temperature or we used a less time or less pressure to seal, make that seal. That's a worst case scenario. And that's what the FDA wants to see because you know, once it scales up and you have normal manufacturing, you're going to have that kind of variation still within spec, but you're kind of on the low end. Then that product that's made under worst case scenario then has to be sterilized under worst case scenario. What we, what we recommend is what we call a 2X sterilization cycle prior to doing your package validation testing. And people will say, well, why so aggressive? Why two times? That's very aggressive. And it is But what we see a lot is down the road, customers, you know, you go to these big contract sterilizers, they may have a malfunction in the run, right? And if you haven't validated that for two times, you can't do another cycle. You have to scrap the product. So we try to package that together and say, let's let's use 2X as the worst case scenario because it is worst case. And it's going to let you in the future rerun your sterilizer if if you have a problem down the road happens all the time. Customers want to change labeling or they, you know, what the sterilizer malfunctions happens all the time. Okay. Happens all the time. Yeah. So the concept of worst case sealing, worst case sterilization, and then obviously transit, that whole concept is around worst case shipping, right? So you're stressing the, you're stressing this packaging system. That's what it's all about. And I'm going to ask a few questions just to make sure I understand. So when you could do that 2X sterilization, you could potentially be I don't know, diminishing the strength of the adhesion of the of the seal. That's kind of the reason it's it's getting closer to the the worst case. Am I understand that right? That is, yeah, that is a good point. Yes, it's it's you've got heat, humidity, time, and all those factors are really stressing the the seal. And as an engineer, you know, the engineers typically they'll come to us and do. We have our own in-house ETO sterilization, which is quite useful because the engineers will do some studies on the product itself. Like they'll will over sterilize just the product as they're going through design. They just want to make sure it's not impacting the product, right? 
that's a good point to yeah. do that. You don't want to get in a situation where you do a two X sterilization, the seals are okay. And now your product is, and that that's especially a concern for uh, implantables that we do. We do a lot of uh, bioabsorbable implants, very sensitive to heat and uh, humidity. So you, you got to be very, very careful on your sterilization. That's why we brought it in house uh, because we can control the parameters. We do what's called a low temperature cycle. So we can really fine tune the cycle for these bioabsorbables to extend the shelf life. I mean, some of these bioabsorbables, <laughs> I've seen some that have a three month shelf life. I mean, it's, oh wow, <laughs> you, can't, you can't commercialize it. You've got to come up with a way to, to yeah. extend it. So, so one of the reasons I bring that up and ask that kind of specific question, I guess, is we started out talking about the importance of doing this early because there's a time, you know, you don't want to have six months at the end of your product waiting, right. waiting to submit your 510k, but there's a bigger reason. And that is you could p- potentially be impacting your product. Maybe, you know, hopefully yeah, not, Absolutely, but, but yeah, that's something to think about. Yeah, a reason to, yeah go ahead. It's good to go, whether you used us or anybody else, it, it's good to go to people that have this expertise because if you do it on your own, you're trying to coordinate the sterilizer, you're trying to coordinate a packaging designer, you're trying to coordinate a packaging lab. And uh, once I did a count on all the protocols and test reports, I, it came out to over 20 protocols and test reports that's required. So it, it's good to go to a company that can just do all that for you and provide everything that you need for your filing. The big, you had asked before about what problems we see with the FDA. Yeah. And I see one of the biggest problems we see is they don't do any validation. They say, we're going to do it later. And it, it's like, that's obviously a problem. You can't market the pro- product if it, the package hasn't been validated. So that's why the FDA gives you a break on that, right? They'll say, well, you can use accelerated aging. We'll take that, clear your 510K. We're confident in that but you have to come back later when you actually did real-time aging for the years that you you want. Okay. And that's another reason why it's so expensive, right? You, if you come up with a product and you want to label it for five years, you literally have product on the shelf waiting five years. And then after every year, it gets tested for its seal strength. Okay. Now that makes sense. And I don't know if you're familiar with QMSR, the new, so part 820 moving towards alignment with the harmonization of 1345. But one of the things that they call out that they may be um, beefing up because they didn't feel like 1345 was strong enough in was uh, the labeling specifically. I can't remember if packaging was a part of that, um, but that is one of the things that they didn't, that, that, that they care a lot about that I've seen as well. Oh so, yeah. Well, yeah. look, labeling is FDA recalls, 40% of FDA recalls are due to labeling. <laughs> so wow, you, I, I mean, you basically high. have all this, it, the packaging is such a nightmare, but um, you, you have to make sure, I'm not sure, I'm not an expert in that um, new, that standard, but I do know that part of the validation is you got to make sure the labels don't get damaged in this whole process, right? You, you don't, you know, have runny ink and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, labeling, I'm telling you, it is a, it's such an underestimated thing. Uh, and, it, and it becomes an issue where you get a lot of products with high SKUs, like these orthopedic implants. It's very easy to mislabel. So just a, a word for the wise out there. Uh, don't underestimate labeling. Make sure your your CM has really good label control because that's 40% of all recalls. Wow. I didn't realize that high. That's interesting. Yeah. So I wonder if we can dive just one layer deeper when we talk about the actual tests that some of the sure. packaging goes through. So 
you mentioned the primary packaging. This is the only time I think in my engineering career I got to use the primary, secondary, and tertiary. You know, yep, maybe with your bulk. That's correct. Yep. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, what are some of the actual tests that each one of those go through? The bottom line, right, is you're trying to maintain the product uh, without getting damaged and without the sterile barriers getting damaged. That is the end goal. So there's basically two main tests that are used. Once all this transit testing and aging is done, you take the product and the package and you have to do what's called um, an integrity test, right? That could be injecting blue dye to make sure that the dye doesn't, you're not seeing dye go all the way through the seal, right? Um, and then you do what's called strength testing. You do, uh, you actually do some peel strengths. You peel the seal apart, right? And you, you measure the force to do that. And the, the industry standard is roughly one pound, not, not to go into all the detail, but. No, that's good. Then that goes back uh, to the user testing too. Yeah. We it? always say, we, we always tell customers we're designing this for a one pound um, seal strength. Yeah. And uh, the integrity. So you, you can use bubble testing, submerge it in. But as far as the standard goes, it, it, I believe it's just uh, it requires a visual. It could require, you know, like a bubble leak test or a dye test. I think it's two out of the three, but okay. I'm not. Yeah. Don't quote me on no, that. No, and that's the sterile, sterile barrier. Are yes. there part of the reason I ask is when we have the things that I'm curious about are tests that every company the majority, you know, 90%, maybe, maybe not that high, but have to go through these specific tests. So when we talk about the sterile bear, you have the integrity, uh, and then the, uh, uh, the strength the test, yeah, the strength, yep. uh, that, but then when we get to the secondary packaging and then the tertiary and bulk, yeah, I don't know that. So there's no, there's no standards on that other than you're looking at the seal, right? Still doing the sa same about. thing. We can, well, then you got to look at the product. You have to make sure the product was not damaged. So that's where that tertiary packaging comes in. It's, it's trying to protect the product as well as the seal. So those two tests are done in parallel. You've got you've to look at the product as it ages and make sure it's good. We typically let the customers do that because they're the experts in the product. So we'll return the product after the ship test to them so they can inspect the product itself. And we'll we'll we evaluate the, the seals. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. I love how simple you can make it. I mean, it is a complicated process, <laughs> but the concept. I'll tell you, even today, there are days I'm just like, I like <laughs> this guy today. He asked, you know, can we pre-validate, can you just use pre-validated seals? And I'm, I'm like, you can, let me think about that. You know, it's, it's, <sighs> it's complicated, but it uh, in the end, it's all about, maintaining a seal and not damaging the product. Yeah. Well, very cool. Any other advice that you can give companies or, or recommendations you have? Yeah, I think it's a nuance, but I have seen this be very helpful. And that's you to validate a seal, you don't have to put a product in it. So we have customers with really expensive products and they want to do this package validation with the product in it for aging trials for to make sure that the seal's good over time you don't have to have product in it and you can run into problems when you're doing accelerated aging with higher temperatures and it impact the product will fail before the package 
So now you don't know what the shelf life of your package is because the product failed. So sometimes what we like to do with customers is separate that out. We'll do, do, we'll do the aging, you know, the oven studies with the product. But in parallel with that, we'll do empty packages for the seals. It's it's a nuance. It requires more discussion. But I think from a customer standpoint, the the key takeaway is, is there a chance that the product expiration date will be shorter than what I want the package to be? So Because some customers will say, well, we, we want to use this package for the next generation product, and that's going to be labeled for five years. This one's only going to be labeled for one. So. Yeah. It's, it's good to tease that out because if you could take the product out of the package and validate that package seal for five years, you're done. That's a great point. I love that. Yeah. So knowing when you can use uh, or the package and not, the, not have anything yeah. in it. But then the other piece, I guess, in my mind is when can you use just dunnage versus the actual or do you actually have to have an actual part? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think technically... You could use something that is worst case. So like I mentioned before, orthopedic implants use the heaviest one for the package, and then you can use it for all, all the other pieces. Um, we get into this, it's, it's a whole other topic, pre-validated packaging. But yes, it's, it's, it's possible, but I wouldn't recommend it. You, know, you want to make sure you've got the package for your product. It can be helpful when you're doing worst case, when you want to validate a worst case scenario, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, I don't even know if it makes sense to do that anyway with the real time and, and the uh, accelerated aging. Yeah. You, you're you're going to want to test your product as well. So it, Exactly. And like I said before, you can separate those, but from a package standpoint, we, we do that. We call it family packaging where we'll say, okay, this tray or this pouch, we're going to validate worst case so that you can use it for other products as well. And you just need justification, you know, in your files, design files of how you justify that. And yeah. it's typically, well, it's, it's less weight. It's doesn't have any sharp features. It's just a less uh, complicated part. So the FDA is fine with that. Well, that's one of the reasons I like knowing people like you, Jeff, because um, knowing what is required and what's not helps you figure out, okay, these are the actual parameters I can work within and yeah. then you start moving those levers. So Yeah, exactly. And how, you know, what are the ways it really is because it's such a big time sink and customers do it too late. You got to get good at, it's not cutting corners, but what, what can we do to kind of compress the schedule and and by that, I mean, how do we take risk out? Because that that's the schedule killer. At least, you know, thirty yeah. percent that fail. That that's a that's a killer. Well, so I work with a lot of customers who are working through the design controls and risk early on. Um, you just mentioned, you know, it's it is a time thing. It's good to do it early. But maybe one question I get a lot of asked a lot is, when do you start this specific task? Um, is it in that design controls? I mean, should the packaging be a part of your design controls and your user needs? Or I believe it is. We we don't design products. Um, by yeah. the time they get to us, they might need some design for manufacturability and scale up. But the product's designed. But my my understanding is that um, it should be considered early yeah. uh, in most engineers that we see are just, they're starting to look at sterilization methods early because they have to look at, see if there's any EO residuals or 
stuff like that, that impacting the product. So at least do that. Um, and then on the packaging side, I think your outsource partner can handle a lot of that, ask the right questions and, you know, chance it's like us. Well, I see a catheter, you know, from the customer standpoint, it's cutting edge. It is the latest, and <laughs> but I've seen a thousand catheters. I know how to package them. So I have a lot of confidence so we can just show them, well, here are going to be some options that you can evaluate down the road, but we're very confident that that's, that's not going to be a problem. Yeah. Awesome. So, okay, yeah. cool. Now that's a lot that one, one, six, oh, seven. I'll have to put that in the, um, in the net. It's 11, six, oh, seven out, you know, every standard yeah, it's 11, six, oh, seven, part one and part two. And if you have trouble getting to sleep at night, just bring that to bed and, uh, right. read that in bed. You'll be, <laughs> you'll be out <laughs> like a light. <laughs> oh man. Well, now this is great. I really appreciate you kind of breaking some of these things down. Um, I, I I'll, I'll put in a link in the show notes at, how people can find you and get a hold of you, see what you're up sure. to. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. All right. Anytime. Those of right. you been listening, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. We welcome you. Come back next time. Hope this was a, a good episode. We'd love to hear any feedback. If you have any feedback, um, send us an email, podcast at globalmedicaldevicepodcast.com. And uh, we look forward to seeing that. We'll see you next time. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Grew, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers are able to say because that's what they're doing. They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 1345 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact greenlight.guru today.